0: What we've been saying in this series is that regardless of what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about him is the most important thing about you. So in this series, we're taking five weeks to look at five different things about who Jesus is, and more than just looking at who he is, we're looking at the difference it makes in your life to believe that's who Jesus is. Today, for part four, we're simply looking at a concept that is both familiar, but in reality, for us, it's also foreign. Uh, Today is Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd, and in just a moment, I'm going to give you a working definition for what we mean by shepherd. But before I give you that working definition, I just have to make you feel sorry for me because I really struggled to come up with a working definition for shepherd. It's the word shepherd is both familiar, but it's also foreign. For example. I don't know if I would know what shepherding is if it was not such a prevalent part of the Bible. You see shepherding all throughout it. Uh, you see shepherding come up in Genesis with, with Jacob and what he did for uh, earning his wife and then his second wife. Long story. Bible is interesting. You should read it. Uh, we see shepherding come up with, obviously, King David, who was a shepherd as a teenager and then was known as the shepherd king. Shepherds are a big part of the Christmas story. Shepherds are all throughout the Bible. And if you didn't have the Bible, we probably wouldn't know that much about them. And the other thing is that even our idea of shepherds can be a little bit skewed based on our context, at least for us here in Lakeville, Minnesota, and in much of the United States. Shepherding is not something that we see. If you're meeting with your growth group this week, you can kind of give them the answer, like what comes to your mind when you hear the word shepherd, but here's what, here's what comes to my mind. I picture a guy with a beard, kind of smiling, with a long flowing robe on, and he's got his little shepherd staff, and he's kind of just sitting there, you know, with his his chin on the staff, just kind of chilling, watching all of his sheep, because they're all in a fenced area, and he's just enjoying, you know, it's like life in the sun. But that is definitely not what shepherds were like in the first century, or for the millennia leading up to the first century. There were no fenced areas for sheep. If a shepherd was lucky, he would have a cave that he would go to for some downtime. It was a wide open thing and shepherds would follow their sheep. Their lives were invested in their sheep and their livelihood depended on those sheep. And just like many of us would probably defend our homes if an intruder came in, so also a shepherd would defend his sheep if an animal tried to take away his livelihood. It's a different life. But as we see There was, real quickly in uh, human history, the tradition to ascribe the title shepherd to a number of people that weren't actual caretakers of animals. Kings would be called shepherds. Priests would be called shepherds. Politicians would even be referred to as shepherd. A shepherd was anyone with authority over people with the idea that a good shepherd would take care of the people and they in turn would take care of him. But then we get into the first century, and even well before that, we see that not all shepherds were good shepherds. That's what we're going to get into today as we look at the, the, the idea that Jesus is a shepherd. He is our shepherd. Before that, here's our working definition for today. As I tried to pin down, like, what does, what does it mean for us to be shepherded today? I thought of people with authority, which you could think of politicians or presidents or whoever you want to think of, but that's a little bit too narrow because really we have a lot more things that shepherd us today. If you really want to expand it, we're shepherded from a lot of things like social media or news outlets or even neighbors across the street. There's a number of things that shepherd us. And so I went with a very broad definition, a working definition for our use here today as we talk about Jesus being our shepherd. Number one on the sheets, a shepherd is someone who has influence over people. A shepherd simply influences people. A shepherd could be a person. It could be a thing. It could be a group. It could be an organization. But it's something that, that influences people to think or feel or behave in a different way. And this is a pretty broad, general area, and in just a minute, we're going to look at some specifics. But here's what I want you to think of. Before I lose you, before you go to a different tab on your, on your internet, interweb device, whatever they're called, computer, before you go to a different tab, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm an independent person. I, I, I'm not influenced by anything or anyone. Here's what I want you to know. and I'm in the same boat, by the way. You are shepherded whether you know it or not. You're influenced in different ways, whether you know it or not. What I want to do today is at least bring some clarity to what it is that shepherds us, to what it is that influences us. Because I think we would all agree it's better to know it, to know what it is that's shaping us and influencing us. So this is a really wide open topic when it comes to, you know, the things that might shepherd us. But what I love is that Jesus gives such clarity to this topic. He is about to, in John chapter 10, go through a series of different things that have the potential to influence you. And he labels them with three different things that bring such clarity and insight for us today. So what we're going to look at today are two things. Here's my goal for the message, in case we get lost, in case I lose you. The first thing is we're going to look at different types of shepherds, different types of influences, and Jesus is going to, again, show us three different things for that. And then the other thing is I want to show you what makes Jesus a good one. Here's a spoiler. He said, I'm quoting him, he said, I am the good shepherd. Let's talk about today what it means that he is a good one and why we should make sure that our primary influence comes from him. So today is we're going to focus on John chapter 10, which is where Jesus told people, I am the good shepherd. And not all of you might know this, but... Um, John chapter 10 comes right after John chapter 9. And John chapter 9 is what we talked about last week. It's kind of an irony. We didn't plan it this way, but the text that I went with this week just happens to be right after what Ben preached on last week. And so here's your quick quiz. Um, What did Ben preach on last week? Yeah, you guys fail. Uh, Okay, I didn't give you any time. Uh, Last week, uh, Ben preached on the, the whole concept of Jesus being our miracle worker. And for a good example, he looked at John chapter 9, where a blind man was healed. A man who was born blind was healed. And maybe you remember this. The the thing that got this whole thing started was people came up to Jesus and said, hey, you see this man who was born blind? He's being punished for something. Who who did the bad thing? Was it him or was it his parents that sinned? And Jesus said, no, no. Just because someone is going through some unfortunate circumstances doesn't mean God is punishing them, and Ben talked about that last week. Uh, Jesus said, this is an opportunity for me to show God's glory. So Jesus healed him, but what we did not tell you last week is what comes up right after that in um, John chapter 9, which is that this man born blind was healed on a Sabbath day. Uh, According to Jewish custom, this was a day of rest. You were not supposed to do any work. And as we're about to see, the religious leaders of those days had strict rules in place for what you could and could not do on a Sabbath day. Now here's, you can redeem yourself here. How did Jesus heal the man who was blind? What did he do? It was gross. It was like a shock factor. That's why many of you remember it. He spit on the ground, spit into some dirt, made some mud, took the mud, and put it over the man's eyes. Obviously, he was performing construction, right? plastering I don't know what you might call it, um, but according to Jewish custom, according to the Pharisees anyway, what Jesus did was work on the Sabbath. The reason Jesus used that mud wasn't just so that he could heal the man. Jesus could have spoken the word and the man could see again. The reason he did this is because he knew that this would be an opportunity not just to demonstrate to this man who he was, but to have a conversation with the religious leaders about who he was. And so this terribly upset the Pharisees. When when they heard that this man was, was healed, but that he was healed on a Sabbath, they began an investigation. And I want to show you, share with you real quick why this angered the Pharisees so much. Like we would think, oh, of course, shouldn't they be happy that this man born blind can now see again? But here's why they were upset. And to understand the Pharisees and why they were so rigid about the Sabbath law, we have to go back a few centuries. And if, if you're going to um, tune out right now, I totally get it because I'm, I can't Listen to history. So I'm going to put some things up on the screen. We're going to go through some quick history that will help you understand why it is that people in the first century were so upset when people were healed. And here's why. It goes back to the 500s BC when the Israelite people were conquered and exiled out of Jerusalem, out of their hometown, as a punishment for their sin. For centuries, God had sent prophets warning the Israelite people Stop disobeying my commandments. Stop bringing idols into your country. Stop ignoring me, or else you will lose this land that I gave you. Years and years of warnings came, but the Israelite people continued to disrespect, disobey, and disregard the God who was their king. And so God allowed the Babylonians to come in and conquer them and exile them out of the land. What did this teach you? If you're a first century Jew, this taught you that disobedience equals punishment. If bad things are happening to you, it must be because God is punishing you for a sin that you did. And this is why they assumed that the man born blind was the result of a sin. So the, as this went on, people were exiled from, from, uh, from Israel in the 500s BC, and one of those people was a man named Ezekiel. He was a prophet, and he wrote a book uh, that we now have. Um, We call it Ezekiel because he wrote it. But in chapter 34, he gets into some really interesting things. You see, Ezekiel is talking to these people who are now being punished because of the sins of a nation, and as he talks to them, he's basically condemning all all of the things that led to this. And in chapter 34, it gets to this highlight where he just goes all out. God, speaking through Ezekiel, says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. Shepherds, being being a reflection of the kings, the rulers, the priests, all of the people who should have had authority over the people, were misleading them all these years. And so God, through Ezekiel, says, Woe to you, shepherds. You have been devouring your flock without taking care of it. You have been a bad example of what it means to be a shepherd. And then in that same chapter, God says this through Ezekiel. He says, I myself will shepherd my people. I will bring them back to their land. I will reestablish them. I will bless them. I will shepherd them because obviously you can't. So what the Pharisees knew in the first century was that sin leads to punishment. If things are going wrong, it must be because there's a sin at play. And by the time we get to the first century, these Pharisees are really focused on obedience to the, to the law of Israel, the, the law that Moses had given, because their thought was this. If we can just conform to God's law, maybe we can fix all of this. If, if disobedience meant that we lost our nation and now we're under the oppression of Rome, maybe if we obey God good enough, it will lead to a restoration of our kingdom. And so that's why the Pharisees were so strict with all of the rules and laws that they, they, they pushed out onto the people, whether it was a Sabbath law or a ceremonial law or a ceremonial wa- washing of hands. They were so strict with these things because they thought, well, maybe if we conform to God's law, it will just fix everything that our ancestors messed up. They viewed themselves as the faithful shepherds of the Jews in the first century. And that gets us to why they were investigating a Sabbath infraction in John chapter 9. This blind man was healed on a Sabbath, but not just spoken healed. He was healed through the process of creating mud and dirt. And that, according to them, was breaking the Sabbath. And so here's their worry. They're worried. Here Jesus is ruining it for everyone. We've gone to such great lengths to establish some laws and traditions that would help us conform to God's law so that we could be restored as a kingdom. But now Jesus is tearing down everything we're working for. And so they bring in the man who was blind, and they interrogate him. Hey, what's going on? What are you doing? If if you're interested in the whole story, read John chapter 9. It's heartbreaking to see what they do to this poor man who's now seeing for the first time, but he's spending his first day in court. Who healed you? How did they do it? And why was it on a Sabbath? And then they bring in this poor man's parents. Was he really blind? How was he healed? Who healed him? When did it happen? They basically step back and say, hey, he's a grown adult. You talk to him yourself. And then finally, they make their way to Jesus himself. What have you done? And here's where Jesus turns things on them. You see, they thought that this man was born blind because of a sin and get this, at the end of John chapter 9, Jesus completely turns this around. Uh, see, look at this. He says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty. But now you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. You think that blindness is a consequence of sin? No. You shepherds of Israel are the guilty ones because you claim that you can see and you claim you know what you are doing. You are worthless shepherds. And this is the conclusion to chapter nine. And then in chapter 10, Jesus goes into this discourse about what it means to be a shepherd, a good shepherd. And by contrast, he gives us a couple of things that fall short. Here's how it begins in verse uh, one, chapter 10. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you Pharisees, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. And then he goes on to expound a little bit, but he's losing him. The point he was making is that the whole way that God interacts with people, the restoration of Israel was not about people conforming to rules. Just because you stop swinging the hammer doesn't make something unbroken, God himself would have to come and restore and fix through his sacrifice, on his terms, what had been broken. But the Pharisees are trying to go about it a different way. They're not entering through the gate. There's only one way for restoration, and they were not going through it. But as Jesus brought out this analogy of the gate, he totally lost them. In fact, in verse 6, it says the Pharisees didn't know what he was saying. And so Jesus kind of switches up the analogy. In verse 7, he says... Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate. Okay? In case you're missing the analogy, the path towards wholeness and restoration is only through me. And then he drops a bomb on them. All who have come before me, he goes on, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers. That's you, Pharisees but the sheep have not listened to them. This was something the Pharisees struggled with. They were so focused on conforming to God's law, but the people were like, we can't do that. (laughs) And truth be told, not even the Pharisees did everything that they told the people to do. They were more interested in getting something from the people. They thought if they could just make a perfect, obedient nation, God would love them again and, and make them back to what they used to be. The Pharisees didn't actually want to help the people. They just wanted something from the people. And that's the first thing that we see when it comes to things or people or whatever. Things that might influence you or shepherd you. We have to be aware of the thieves that are out there. Thieves just want something from you. They're not actually in it for you. Let me give you an example. This is kind of a funny example. But um, I recently uh, had a conversation with uh, one of my kids and Somehow they got it in their mind that they would just automatically get a car in high school and college. Like, it would just show up in the garage somehow, and they would just have their own car that, you know, they can drive around. And so I had to squash that. You know, maybe they'll get a car, maybe they won't, but, you know, it's not like an automatic thing, so it'll be a manual. Bad joke. So we had this conversation, and, and the question came, well, what if I'm in college, and you know I'm far from home, and I need to go somewhere, and I don't have a car? Well, what do I do? And this was is, this is my answer. I said, well, what, do you, what you do is you go near the parking lot, you wait for one of your classmates to pull in in their car, and you see who it is, and then you kind of walk with them for a while, and you know, be, be friends with them, and then when you need a car, you just ask for their car. You know, that's how you do it. You know, college is about survival. You know, that's, that's the, the main principle I'm trying to teach. But I'll admit there were maybe once, one or two or three or four times in college where I didn't, you know, I wasn't that blatant about it, but there were some people who had cars, and I didn't have one and, for a time, and so I, I was friendly with them because <laughs> I liked them, sure, but I kind of wanted something from them also. There are some forces of influence out there that promise you Good things. They, they, they pretend to establish a relationship and have some vested interest in you, but in reality, they only want something from you. Sometimes it can be a person. Sometimes it can be a voice of authority. But as we think about the shepherds in our lives, we have to be aware that not all shepherds are good. Some are more like the thieves and the robbers that Jesus talked about, and they just want something from you. Would you be aware of that this week? We'll talk about this in a bit, but would you be aware that maybe some of the things you're being influenced by right now just want something from you? They do not want something for you. Now, this is kind of extreme. You know, the the thief, the robber, hopefully there aren't too many things in your life that are like this. But Jesus gives another analogy or another type of shepherd that might not have your best interests in mind. We're going to skip to verse 12. He said, "'The hired hand is not the shepherd.'" And does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. He doesn't own them. The the Greek word cares nothing for, uh, it carries with it. It can also be translated as anxiety for. Like consumed with worry or consumed with thought over something. In reality, the hired hand is not really consumed with thought over something. He's just looking for the paycheck, and then he's got bigger, better things to think about. He's consumed in other areas. The hired hand is not consumed by this. A quick example of this for me is uh, um, when I was a kid. Uh, my, uh, my parents had a lot of cars. Like None of them were very good, but we had a lot of them. And what I knew growing up, the youngest of five, is that my older brothers and sisters were able to actually make money by waxing some of the cars. And lo and behold, my big day came. My dad came to me and he said, Hey, Matthew, do you want to you know, wax the car with me? And I'm thinking, yes. I could use some money. And so we go out into the garage. We're we're waxing this blue pickup truck with a cover on it. I mean, just horribly sun faded. So we're out there working on it, working on it. He's showing me how to do it, you know, wax on, wax off, the whole Miyagi, uh, Mr. Miyagi thing. And we're waxing the car. And after a while, I'm getting tired. I've got other things I want to do. And so I ask my dad, how much am I getting paid for this? And that question shocked him because from his perspective, that was a father-son bonding time where we were spending quality time together. And here I was just in it for the money. I was a hired hand, but he was looking for someone with a little bit more interest invested in it. Now, that's a, a funny example, but we have to be aware of the hired hands that might be in our lives influencing us in different ways. What we need to know about hired hands is that hired hands will abandon us. They will leave when the cost is too high. When it's too much time, they start to say, oh, look at the time I have to go. Sorry, I know you're in a mess, but too much for me. When the cost gets too high energy-wise, when it's too much commitment, even when you're in the worst spot imaginable, like when a wolf is coming for you, someone who's just a hired hand it will become evident that they really don't have your best interests in mind. Their thoughts are consumed elsewhere. And I'm not saying that all hired people, like in Jesus' words, the hired hands, they're not all bad people. It's just that a lot of the people in our lives who influence us don't really have the big picture in mind. They might be going in a different direction. And when our directions get too far apart, there will be a separation. There will be an abandonment. Who are some of the hired hands who are influencing you this week. Not that they're all bad. Not every friend can be there with you 24-7, and not all, not all friends have an unlimited amount of energy and time for you. But just be aware of the different people in your life that might be viewing you more from the relationship as a hired hand. And then Jesus goes on. The implication behind all these things is that the Pharisees he was talking to, they're the thieves and the robbers. The Pharisees, they're kind of like the hired men the hired hands who don't really care about the people and they're quick to abandon them. Then Jesus, as he gets into it, says a statement that would have shocked them, a statement that would have brought to mind Ezekiel chapter 34, where Jesus himself would be acknowledging, you remember what was prophesied 590 years ago? I'm fulfilling it. I am the good shepherd. I'm not a thief. I'm not a hired hand. I am completely invested in loving and serving the people that you have been faithless to. The word good in the Greek that uh, John wrote this in, the, the word good is really ambiguous. It can mean beautiful. It can mean um, Morally, ethically good. It's a really broad term. But what Jesus says next takes away any doubt about what he means. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No investment is too high. No cost is too great. He lays down his life for the sheep. This would have been a common analogy in Jesus' day because what shepherds would often do um, at nighttime or when the sheep were were down in an area, the, the shepherd would literally lay his body down across the threshold of whatever opening it was that would give access to the sheep. He would be the dividing line between danger and safety. And Jesus acknowledged, I am putting down my life for the sheep. And it wouldn't be until a few weeks later that people would finally grasp the extent to what he meant this. His life would literally be taken from him. But not in a way where he was powerless to stop it. He goes on. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And that by itself is remarkable that the son of God would spend time, spend energy, knowing what it's like to be us and spending time so that we can know what God is like. He, he, he can simply say, I know my sheep and my sheep know me as a reflection of something greater, just as my father knows me and I know my father. The, the whole intent behind this is to bring us into a, a unity with God, a relationship, a fellowship with God. And I lay down my life for the sheep to make that happen. This was his choice. And as Jesus, again, reflects the the phrases that you see in uh, Ezekiel 34, which, by the way, I haven't said this yet. If you have time this week, definitely read through Ezekiel 34. It's interesting to see the parallels between that and what Jesus is saying here. But in Ezekiel 34, the whole idea is that some shepherd in the future would bring together the Jewish people and reestablish a kingdom again. And as Jesus is thinking through that, he says it's actually bigger than that. He goes on in verse 16 to say, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. You think this is about a Jewish kingdom and reestablishing a nation? It's, it's not. There's a greater kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd, one church, one baptism, one Lord, one Savior. This brought up a, an interesting thought for me, and what I hope is that it's, for, for this series, it's not just you know a bunch of... Um, matured Christians who are being reminded of who Jesus is and what that means. But but I hope maybe this, this series is getting the attention of some people who maybe are searching for who Jesus is and they're questioning or doubting or maybe a bit skeptical. And here's one thing I want you to know. When you read this sentence, you might be thinking, oh, well, he's just talking about, you know, like the good people. The good shepherd just wants the good people in his flock. But here's what I want you to know. When it comes to what Jesus is saying, next slide, Jesus calls you his sheep before you even hear his voice. He knows you before you even know him and his heart is on you before your mind can even grasp what he's done for you. For me, this is an incredible display of what it means to have a good shepherd. A regular shepherd takes care of his investment. It's a reciprocal thing, but a good shepherd lays down his life even though it could never be reciprocated back. Last phrase here, John 17, uh, 10 verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. The the love God has is always an action-focused love. The love of my father results in this laying down of my life only to take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. It is my choice to lay down between my sheep and danger. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This is the command or these are the marching orders that I received from my Father in heaven. Now, here's what this means for me and for you. When Jesus came, it was completely his choice to do what he did. When he laid down his life, what he did was this. He barricaded us. he, He blocked us from the power that death has over you. He says, I lay down my life to keep death from having a grip on you. He laid down his life as a sacrifice so that the death that we should have received was instead placed on him. And then what he's hinting at here is what we're going to be celebrating in a big way in two weeks, which is that though he laid down his life, he also has authority to pick it up again. Though he died as your shepherd he now lives as your good shepherd also. And this brings me to the the last big idea for today. When it comes to a good shepherd, a good shepherd will sacrifice for you. A good shepherd sacrifices for you. This can be a, a human thing, a human level, where there's people in your life who have made sacrifices for you, like parents who bought you a car in college, say thank you there's good people in your life who will sacrifice for you because ultimately their long-term goal is matched up with your long-term goal. You're both headed to heaven together and they're making sacrifices for you along the way. Identify those people and thank them and pray for them and seek more of them. But on a bigger level, ultimately there is one good shepherd that every one of us has. No matter how much a person in this world might love you, their energy will meet a limit. Their ability to sacrifice will come to an end someday in some place. But you have one shepherd who has sacrificed everything for you. Therefore, when it comes to the things you're shepherded by this week, the greatest amount of influence should come from the good one, the good shepherd. And that's what I'm going to leave you with today. To think through in your own mind, where are the different um, influences in your life coming from this week? Is it a person? Is it a group of people? Is it an organization? Is it a YouTube channel? Is it a TV show? Is it a news outlet? What are the things influencing you this week, and to what degree do you allow them to influence you? You cannot always pick your shepherd, but you can pick how much they influence you. So, here's three things I hope you can do this week. The first thing I'm so proud of, I think you're going to be proud of me too, because this is one of those preacher twists on words, and I was really proud of myself for finding it. Um, but the first thing is uh, number one, identify your pie. This doesn't make sense yet, but I, as I was thinking about this, you know, as you think about all the different. Um, things in your life that have influence you know like maybe 25% comes from mom and dad 50% comes from this 10% comes from this I know some of you are getting it already so you can kind of divide this in a pie of, you know things that influence you but today we're not talking about influences we're talking about shepherds so we have a shepherd's pie thank you I'm proud of myself I'm proud of myself this is going down in my book as greatest moments ever Now, I can't fill this out for you. Maybe it's actually for you this week, drawing a circle and putting some lines in it and saying, you know what? Here's where most of my influence is coming from right now. If you're wondering, you're not sure how to draw it up, count up your time. How much time am I spending listening or conversing or watching this? And maybe you just start with an amount of time thing. Okay, two hours with this, one hour with this, 30 minutes with this. Here's what I know. If, If you're spending more time being influenced by something other than your good shepherd, there's a chance that there's a competition going on. Identify your pie this week. Step two, would you stop following the thieves and the hired hands? Um, Maybe it's not a relational disconnection, but maybe it's more of a, a realization that, you know, this person is more of a hired hand, and I appreciate what they're doing, but their energy has a limit. And they've got other things to do. And I'm not going to ask or expect from them more than what they can do for me in this this season or in this week. So identify that. Definitely stop following the thieves. And pray for God for the wisdom to identify which is which. And then finally, third thing, increase the influence of your shepherd. Some of you maybe have a good rhythm already where the majority of your personal influence, you've got that, it already comes from him you've got that time in the word each day, you've got that time in prayer, and you are influenced through praying continually as Paul encouraged in the New Testament. Would you just, as you think through your shepherd's pie, would you just think the amount of influence that you're getting from the good shepherd, and would you take some steps to increase it, to widen it, to give your good shepherd a bigger piece of the pie? And as you do that, here's my prayer for you this week that number one, you would give it the time it deserves to think about the things that influence you. Because we're all influenced by something, whether we know it or not, I think we'd all agree it's better to know it. And as Jesus gives insight through John chapter 10, I pray that you would see the different kinds of shepherds that might be out there. And that as you follow the good shepherd more, it would simply give you the peace and joy that only he can give, both in this life and the next. So I can't wait to see you guys back next week. Uh, Next week, we're going to be going into uh, another idea that kind of is connected with this. Not only is Jesus your good shepherd who laid down his life for you, but Jesus is your king who fights for you too. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, in John chapters 9 and 10, we see Jesus interacting with different people in a way that reveals who he is. His dialogue in in chapter 10 was a clear reference that not only is is he a good influence for us, but he is the promised savior that Ezekiel foreshadowed and prophesied about. He is the good shepherd who steps in with an, an honest, deep, genuine love for the sheep. And he loves us in a way that none other could. By putting down a sacrifice that no one else could offer, and they give us a life that no one else could promise. So this week, I pray that you'd give us wisdom to recognize the different influences that might be in our lives, and to recognize whether they're thieves or hired hands or, or shepherds in different ways. And as we appropriate things and, and adjust things, give us, give us the patience and wisdom to be able to let our greater influence come from Jesus, our good shepherd. Bless all of us this week and bless us this week as we pay attention to the voices in our lives. I ask ask that all in, in Jesus' name, amen.